Have you ever wanted to peek into the dark corners of history and see what you find? Luckily, you've come to the right place. I'm Teddy. I'm Katrina. And this is Grave History, a macabre history podcast. Welcome back to Grave History, a macabre history podcast. I saw, I, threw, I threw myself off though because I was like, it's not evening, what? <laughs> it's never evening when we record anymore and that's that's Not really. Fine. It's a beautiful day today. Yay! It's a beautiful day here as well. For once we are matching. Yes. It is warm. It is sunny. Um, there's, I went, uh, there's some tadpoles near me that I'm going to see every day. Nice. I love nice. them. Not got legs yet, which is just lazy. I had legs when I was born. <laughs> and which is somewhat suitable because today's theme is going to take us into the water. Ooh. Drop us in the river. Into the depths. Yes. So this is going to be a small anthology Ooh. today that hopefully might be the first of more than one. I hope so. Yeah, there are so many stories that there's no way of like crushing them all into one episode and I did try <laughs> you could say the ocean is full of them it is that is today's subject matter <laughs> the ocean we're going to be talking about some ocean mythology we're going to be talking about some ocean folklore Woo. we're going to be talking about some oceans fuck yeah I'm excited and today's episode specifically is strange tales from western Scotland nice because um, I ended up, like, when I was trying to narrow down some of my favourite stories, all three of them ended up being from almost the exact same area. They, mm. these, th- these three stories are very close to each other geographically, which, you know, That's which good. was an accident. But I guess, yeah, this just... Sure. This, sure, sure it was. That's the first sea-based pun you're going to hear tonight. I doubt very much it's going to be the last. <laughs> yeah, so tonight what we're going to do is have a brief overview of kind of the oceans around Britain, just to, you know, set the stage. Sounds good. And then we're going to look at our three strange stories, which are a mystery, Mm. a mythological creature or creatures, and a natural but still bizarre phenomenon. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, good spread. I like Mm. it. I know, right? And yes, I usually handwrite all my notes, so if you hear me turning a page, I apologise for that. It's ambiance. Ambiance. This is ASMR. <laughs> Page turning ASMR. Uh, but yeah. yes, stick on some ocean ASMR if you want, because I think that would really add something. Mhm. Mhm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I say, the ho- um, hopefully we'll be, we'll we'll do some more ocean stuff because I didn't get into so much stuff. There's so many great ocean mysteries that like I would love to cover. Yeah. One thing I love is sub- is uh, unexplained submerged objects. Oh, yes, you mentioned that in the yeah. UFO episode, didn't you? But um, yeah. this is this is a British-centric podcast, and I couldn't really find any examples of such a thing in British waters, or at least Boom. nothing that was extensively document- documented. Mm. You know, uh, though I, I would welcome any information anyone has, because that would be a, you know, a cool thing to read about. Like, one of my favourites is in Japan, the Yonaguni Monument. Ooh. Yeah, which is a... Which, look at pictures from this, it's great. It's a rock mm. structure in the ocean, and... Some people believe it's man-made because of the way the rocks are formed. Huh. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. That's cool. I will Google that. I, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff like 
the vile vortices, which are mm. areas of strange activity, many of which are at sea, but none of which are anywhere near Britain, which is a shame. It's also my death metal band name. It's a pretty good name for a death metal band. Mm-hmm. There's probably a band called the Vile Vortices. I mean, I would hope so. Mm. Hope someone would have snatched that one up. Yeah. But yeah, so what qualifies this story as British? Well, let's get technical for a second and talk about the water around uh, the UK. Uh, it's uh, UK is surrounded by the Atlantic Ocean, mm-hmm. as you may know. Down at the very bottom is the English Channel. On the left and extending up over Scotland is the North Sea, which separate England and Scotland from Denmark, Norway, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium and France. Around Cornwall, Wales and Brittany... And also the Silly Isles is the Celtic Sea, mm. mm-hmm, which is our second kind of separation from France. Well, third, actually. English Channel as well. Yeah. <laughs> Between the mainland UK and Ireland is the Irish Sea, and we've got the Isle of Man in the middle. So yeah, there's a lot of water going on. Some fast facts about these oceans for you. Hell yeah. The English Channel is the busiest shipping area in the world, which I... That's pretty unbelievable. That is, yeah. I would have thought it was... Because it's tiny. Yeah. I guess maybe it's, it's by square... Footage? Yeah, I got yeah by percentage per square footage or something. Mm. I don't really know. But some native species to our oceans include whales, yay, bottlenose dolphins, harbour porpoise, and short-beaked common dolphins. Common seals, which sounds mean. They're not common to me. They're very special. <laughs> Lots of seabirds, the best of which is objectively the puffin. Of course. Mm-hmm. Puffins are excellent. Yes. Various crustaceans, bivalves, mollusks, many, like I said before, many kinds of whale, including orcas, which aren't technically whales, but whatever. Technically dolphins. Yes, they are. Minky whales. Minky whales? Have you ever seen a minky whale? They're delightful. No. Mm, sperm oh my whales. God, now I need to Google that. You do. Fin whales. Fin whales are really, really big. They are very cool to see in person. I've seen a couple in person and they are very cool. Humpback whales. So these are some of the largest creatures on Earth that can be seen in the waters around Britain. Huh. Mm-hmm. I would not have expected that. Oh, yeah, you can. It's, um... I mean, I do, sometimes you have to go quite far out and, like, sighting them isn't guaranteed or anything, but, you know. Mm. Blue whales, I believe, can be seen in pretty much any ocean, but they're pretty... They're a rare sighting due to uh, whaling, mostly, mm. unfortunately. Um, and that is the biggest creature that has ever existed, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Other notable creatures include the giant squid, who I love. Fuck yeah. Yep. It's made appearances most notably in the North Sea. Mm. And again, look at a picture, an actual photo of a giant squid, because they're very cool looking. The fe- females of this species have been measured up to 13 metres in length. Jesus Christ. I know, right? That's uh, mantle to the end of the tentacles. Uh, but the average is closer to 5 metres. And mm. also the seven-arm octopus, which is the second largest octopus in the world, I believe. Why have we got all these huge animals? I don't know. Because <laughs> I'm just, I'm looking at a giant squid, yeah. and it's silly. Like, that's too big. It's not as big as a colossal squid. That is the biggest kind no. of squid. Yeah, Google is offering that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're usually seen in, like, New Zealand and Antarctica, mm. those guys. There is a phenomenon known as deep-sea gigantism. Yeah. Or is it giganticism? Where, like, basically the, the deeper you live, the bigger you are. Yeah. To put it in a really scientific way. But yeah, just I'm just trying to make the point that lots of strange-looking, you might even say exotic animals, do live in our local waters, mm. um, including sharks. Yeah. The basking shark. Please look at a photo of a basking shark. I've never love seen one. Basking sharks. They're great, aren't they? they? They look so silly. They just give you a big hug with their mouths. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's one way of phrasing it. But the, also the short fin mako shark, which is the fastest shark in the world. Hmm. And it's believed that the smooth hammerhead and the frilled shark may also make appearances in UK waters. Both quite bizarre looking creatures. Yeah. Pretty easily mistakable for sea monster. Yeah, I was going to say, we do have a lot of... I mean, I'm just the first one that's come to mind. I'm not going to say just in case it's your story for later, but Britain and the British Isles do have a good history of weird, like, sea monster stories. Oh, yeah, totally. And I'm starting to see why. Yeah. I guess, see, the point I was trying to make with all this is that, um, especially in the olden days, so to speak, when maybe people weren't, you know, they, they maybe had never heard of a giant squid before, and mm. if you see one washed up, your first thought is going to be, that's a sea monster. Oh, absolutely. My thought, even though I know what it is, is that's a sea monster. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that, because, like, I, like... I mean, oceanic folklore is fascinating mm. in and of itself. Just you know, sailors' superstitions. But like, I'm I'm an overeducated 21st century person, and <laughs> if I if I was at sea and I saw a water spout, for example, I would go completely feral. Yeah, absolutely. Like, what the hell is that? So just imagine being like, yeah, maybe you're just you're just a humble sailor man who's never seen that kind of thing before, and you see ball lightning or something. Mm. Yeah, totally. Or um, what's the one that happens at sea? St. Elmo's Fire? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, which is um, a kind of greenish lightning which is appears around the top of masts, I believe. Mm, that's magic. Absolutely magic. <laughs> but yeah, the thing about the ocean, another weird point about it, is how relatively little we can study it in comparison mm. to like the land or even space. Yeah. The statistic that's pinged back and forth about how much we haven't explored the ocean. Uh, according to National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration USA, it's about 95%. Is unexplored? Yep. Fucking hell. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's by surface area of the ocean floor or like mm. volume of water. I'm really showing my ignorance. I don't know enough about oceanography, geology, marine biology. Yeah. Anything. Both of us are history dickheads. Yeah, that's a problem really, isn't it? <laughs> I really like marine bio- I, pro- I kind of wanted to be a marine biologist, but I just don't have a science brain, mm. unfortunately. Or that maths brain. Yeah, it's the maths brain mostly that's holding me back. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, I, the, the reason that it's so unexplorable really is pressure. Mm. Mm-hmm. Deeper you go, the greater the pressure which this can destroy machines, let alone people. Plus you also have to waterproof everything. Mm. Uh, plus it's really, really dark down there. We've only recently developed light powerful enough to penetrate that kind of darkness. Yeah, we only just recently reached the bottom of... Was it the Mariana Trench we just reached the bottom of? Yes. Was that the one that James Cameron did? Because James Cameron is an enthusiast deep sea diver and he owns one of the most sophisticated deep sea diving vessels. I assume so. Yeah. I know he's the one to uh, do most visits to the wreck of the Titanic. He is. So he knows a thing about a thing. He's kind of a self-made expert. Yeah, he said there's mm -hmm. not really anything at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Although we don't know what his agenda is. Yeah, I remember there was a rumour, I don't know how true it was, that they found a piece of rubbish at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. <laughs> I mean, I, I can believe that. Mm-hmm. Me too. Mm-hmm. But basically, you need a lot of funding to explore the sea, which James yeah. Cameron has, so it's probably easiest <laughs> yeah. for him to do it. 
The most we have at the moment really is a fairly basic map of the ocean floor. Unlike moons and planets, we can't use radar to map them because ocean water obstructs satellite waves. Huh. And that's as technical as I'm going to get. <laughs> An interview with Ryan Carlyle, who is a subsea hydraulics engineer with Forbes magazine, he said... The ocean is excruciatingly boring. Thanks, dude. Interesting, fe- <laughs> interesting features like geothermal vents and coral reefs are pretty few and far between. Mostly you'll just see vast expanses of mud. Plus visibility isn't as good as it is in space, where you can see yeah. for th- miles. Oh god, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just exposing my scientific ignorance, yes. Yeah, I mean, we can map things, supposedly, outside of our own solar system. Well, yeah, yes, yes, we can. So... Whereas, yeah. yeah, the ocean... And pe- people just generally don't care enough about the ocean, I don't think, which is a shame, mm. but there you have it. I'm like, look, there's primordial ooze down there. Mmm, primordial ooze. It's from whence we came. But, you know, you can't, like, make it into a colony or anything like what Elon no. Musk is definitely going to do to Mars. God, everything I know about Elon Musk, I know against my will. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about him earlier today. Why has he got so mm. much like free real estate inside my brain? <laughs> Ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Plus, oh yes, one final factor. Um, this is well, I've written this as being Britain specific, but it's not Britain specific really. Um, ge- geology, geology, come on, geology and climate around Britain really affects our relationship with the oceans. Mm. We are a country where the weather is changeable and runs the gamut from warm and sunny to snowy and stormy, rain, sleet, fog, har. Not really extreme weather like you see in some places, but incredibly variable. Mm. And this is pretty important in terms of atmosphere. Yeah, we get a lot of kind of like the the weather patterns. Oh, science. Is that what they're called? I don't know. Yeah, it's the like the the temperatures that come down from Siberia. Or oh, gotcha. Up from somewhere else. Yeah. I know what you're talking about, but I don't know what it's called. <laughs> I hit the wrong topic, didn't I? Jesus, pissing Christ. Yeah. Big changes in the atmosphere. Yes. Um, <laughs> and also, um, I studied geology for two years at school, so bear with me. Um, <laughs> The UK's got a lot of very unusual sort of geological features that have become very infused with mythology. A very famous one is Fingal's Cave on Staffa. Which one's that? So, you know the Giant's Causeway? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Fingal's Cave is the sort of other end of that, supposedly. It's where the giant lived. Ah, mm-hmm. I'm going to Google it. Yeah, look up Staffa and Fingal's Cave because it's a very beautiful, I think it's Basalt um, Island. Mm. And also one of the places we're going to talk about in a minute, in the Flan Isles, the mythology around them was that they were seven hunters uh, turned in, into islands for fun, for hunting on the Sabbath. Ah, yeah. there's a lot of people turned to stone for doing things on Sabbaths. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, apparently. Mm. Yeah, plus, you know, in, in Cornwall, you get all the, the stacks and the stumps. They tend to have names like the old man. Yeah. Yeah. The seven sisters or whatever. Mm. It's, it's very... It's very personified. Mm. I was going to say, I think the Rollwrights in Oxfordshire are people who did something on the Sabbath, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Mm. They're just Mm -hmm. a a stone circle. Are they a natural or unnatural formation? I think natural? Man-made, rather. I don't remember off the top of my head. But me and my friend did like a a driving tour of uh, Standing Stones. God, that would be nice right about now, mm-hmm, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. A driving tour of standing stones. 
Um, the final part in this rich tapestry is uh, Britain's maritime history, as you and I know all mm-hmm. too well. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not. I didn't really spend a lot of time in the, in Greenwich Maritime Museum. I spent too much. I never even went to the Cutty Sock. <gasps> you weren't missing much. I didn't think so. No. Because <laughs> we got free entry, but also every time I was done with work, I just wanted to go home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how it is. I'm not really aiming to get into British maritime history here because there's so much of it. Yeah. Um, more just trying to explain that Britain and the ocean sort of necessarily go together. Mm. As an island nation, having a good relationship with the sea was essential to our livelihoods, oh, especially yeah. in smaller island communities. But also, Britain, Britannia ruled the waves, <laughs> as you may remember at some point, mm-hmm. apparently. Supposedly. It's fine, we're going back to that now. Mm. With the empire, Britain owned and passed through more ocean than ever for trade, for military reasons, uh, as well as science and exploration. Yeah. And until air transport and the Channel Tunnel, Britain was only really accessible by sea at all. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a huge part of our history, more so, even if you don't live in a, in a seaside town, more so than you might realise. Mm. Mm-hmm. But to learn more about that, obviously I recommend going to the Maritime Museum in Greenwich when it opens again. Yeah. If it opens again. <laughs> when it opens when? again. It'll open. When? Also, isn't when? there a Maritime Museum in Cornwall? There is. A maritime mm. museum in Cornwall. There's, I mean, there's maritime museums pretty much every city. I know Bristol's got very good maritime heritage. Mm. It's worth checking out. Dundee in Scotland. Hey. And if you're if you're in Scotland, um, there is a museum in Leith in Edinburgh, uh, Trinity House Maritime Museum. Mm-hmm. You can only go in by appointment, and I think it only goes on Tuesdays. But it's a great museum. I totally recommend it Ooh, if you're in Edinburgh. That would make mm-hmm. you fancy. Yes, exactly. It's a it's a beautiful building, just a beautiful old uh, Georgian building, mm. and it's in like such an untouristy part of town that like it feels. More authentic, I'm going to say. That's fair. Okay, yeah, I can see that. It's nice. But what this all means is that seafaring men, and it was usually men, they spent a lot of time on long voyages, mm. seeing things they might never have seen before in places alien to their British sensibilities, which is a veritable sourdough starter for mythology and legend. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> as well as music. Yeah. Sailors would like sing sea legends to help with their work. Mm-hmm. A lot of good sea shanties that you can listen yeah. to. Yes, exactly. There's so many. Oh god, I've, I found um, on Spotify there's some really, really great old-fashioned sea shanty <gasps> playlists. Yes! And I mean proper sea shanties, not just like the Decemberist or something. Yeah. Much as I love that, that one. What's that one song? The Revenge of the Mariner. Oh, Mariner's Revenge. The Mariner's Revenge. Yeah. That's the one, yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty good sea shanty type yeah. song. But yeah, mythology is really about ascribing order to chaos and making the unknowable knowable. Mm. So really the uncertainties we still feel towards the sea have only been updated with fresh mythology, more modern mythology. Science doesn't necessarily mean the end of mythology, it just gives mythology more uh, fuel. Well, we don't have have fairy tales anymore, but we do have urban legends. Mm -hmm. It's just fairy stories in a a sneaky coat. (laughs) Usually a slightly creepy coat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Creepy coat. So what we're going to have tonight is we're going to have three stories. I'm going to start with the longest one because I think that's the best way to go. Okay. And we're going to start with a mystery. Yay! A very you you you've probably heard of this. A very well known mystery. Ooh. That of the Flannan Islands lighthouse and the mysterious disappearance of its keepers in 1900. I have vaguely heard of that, but I can't remember enough to to know it ahead of time so I'm I'm going to be excited. It's a very famous case. There was a film that came out about it a couple of years ago with Jared Butler in it, which I haven't seen but apparently it's quite good. Huh. It's not The Lighthouse mm. starring uh, it's Robert It's not Pattinson. The Lighthouse. <laughs> it's I 
Apparently that is somewhat based on it, though. Ah. If that makes sense. Okay. Um, like it, it, it takes inspiration from it. But yeah. No. Um, the lighthouse. Is, the lighthouse is based on a different incident, I think. Okay. Good I to know. Reading about. But the info from this section comes from uh, a very useful book, uh, The Scottish Islands by Hamish Haswell Smith, mm-hmm. which which is actually my dad. My dad actually helped me a lot with the, a lot of the island research because he kind of knows it anyway. And also a book called Mysteries of the Sea by our Lionel Fanthorpe. Sounds like an excellent book. Such a good name as well. Yeah. And uh, The Lighthouse Stevensons by Bella Bathurst, which is also a good book if you're interested in like uh, lighthouses, history of engineering, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hope you are, because I'm about to talk about them for a little bit. Fuck yeah. So <laughs> this lighthouse in particular is located on Ellen Moor, mm-hmm. which is one of seven Flannan Isles off the Outer Hebrides, right on the edge of the Outer Hebrides. Please look at a map to see exactly how far out is for some context it's very close to saint kilda okay which is yes which is the most westernly point in the uk i believe yeah okay yeah or owned by the i I know there's some technicalities when it comes to islands which saint kilda's not inhabited neither is uh neither are the flannan isles uh completely empty the lighthouse is now operated automatically Mm. oh wow that is Way out, huh? It's very far out. It's an archipelago. Archipelago. However you pronounce it. Archipelago, yeah. Just trying to get, you know, um, an idea of exactly how isolated it would have been out there to work out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, the lighthouse is the only inhabitable structure on the islands. Mm-hmm. There's also a ruined chapel and a small ruined bothy on the islands nearby, but they're not really inhabitable. The lighthouse still stands, of course, 23 metres tall, and it was built between 1895 and 1899, the work of lighthouse engineer David Allen Stevenson, who was of the Stevenson family, a veritable dynasty of lighthouse builders. His grandfather and his father before him, both called Robert Stevenson, Uh essentially, they were the kings of lighthouses. (laughs) Look up lighthouses around the UK and pretty much all of them were built by the Stevensons. In association with the Stevenson. The only one I know is because my partner comes from Plymouth, so I know mm. about Smeaton's Tower. That's the only one I know. Yes, there you go. Wonderful example. Um, and also Robert Louis Stevenson it was his cousin. He, Robert Louis Stevenson was the, the writer huh. in the family of lighthouse makers. He's the one that wrote an Treasure Island? Yes, Treasure Island, Kidnapped, uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. I love Robert Louis Stevenson. He is my old-timey boyfriend. Now I'm just thinking about black sails and I don't know how much help I'm going to be. Just think about black sails the rest of the time. (laughs) But uh, David Allen built 26 lighthouses in Scotland. Okay. To take a quick side, if you've never seen one before, please look them up or go out and see them when you can. They're all over Scotland. There's one a few miles away from where I'm sitting right now on the Bass Rock, Uh which is this big uh, basalt rock protuberance in the Firth of Forth, usually covered in gannets this time of year. It's very (laughs) striking looking. It's also got an old prison on it that I would love to see one day. Oh, fuck yeah. And also his father designed lighthouses at Lindisfarne and St. Abbs, and his grandfather designed the lighthouse on the Isle of May, which is near and dear to me. Both literally and also I've been there quite a few times because my dad usually does like... My my dad works with birds. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, usually him and his mates will spend like a week or two out on the island doing bird things. I don't actually know what they do. He's an ornithologist. That stuff. Yeah. Birds. Yeah. Guys being dudes. Just guys being dudes. And also the Bell Rock Lighthouse, which if you look up no other pictures of Lighthouse, please look up the Bell Rock Lighthouse uh, because it's an extraordinary piece of engineering. One of the seven wonders of the industrial world, in fact. And that is also still standing and also automated now. Uh, Anyway. Oh, that is cool. 
It is cool, isn't it? That's very, very cool. I think something like seven men and died. And also definitely where fairy tale princesses are kept. I know. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's it's it, it's like where mermaid Rapunzel would live. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm. When Triton is like, no, you're not going to go and fuck a human. Get in the tower. But daddy, I'm 16 years old. Daddy, I love him. Fun and Lighthouse was built with the use of a small railway on the island, which has now been removed. They wittily called it Clapham Junction at the time when it was being... Yeah, I, I bet those long Flannan Isle evenings just flew by. <laughs> They're having fun. Leave them alone. They just... Yeah, I know, I know. They're having fun. You think your quarantine is bad. Yeah, honestly, that's the main impression I'm getting from <laughs> yeah. reading all this. Back when, at this point, um, a lighthouse's functions could only be performed by human inhabitants, mm. and that function was very, very important, especially, you know, at the edge of land, which is where they were. Mm. At its inception, uh, a gamekeeper living on the nearby Isle of Lewis was paid £8 a year to keep an eye on the lighthouse in case the keepers signalled for help. No radio. So they just <laughs> had to literally God. just watch the lighthouse. Yeah? yeah. Shit. On the 15th of December, 1900... A steamer named the Arctor, or the Archtor, I'm not 100% sure, passed by the Flannan Islands. Uh, the captain observed that at this distance the light should be visible, and logged that it was not. Mm. Sometime later, on December 26th, which is before this information had even been received, the lighthouse relief tender arrived at Ellenmore after a very tough battle through the stormy Atlantic. Basically, the relief tender was there to provide supplies and relief for the men on yeah. the, in the lighthouse. Uh, now, upon their arrival, they saw no one waiting to receive them at the dock. Rude. And, very rude. And they, and they were surprised when, even after sounding their whistle and siren, there was no response from the lighthouse. They even fired a signal rocket. Nothing. Jeez, okay. I know, right? Now, there should have been three men at the lighthouse. Uh, their names were James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur. Is there fan fiction about them? I don't know, Probably. Every time you said he was here to provide relief for the men at the thing, I was like, this, this is a song. Oh, of I porn. didn't even think about that. You ruined it. <laughs> hey, you made similar jokes about my naval history mystery. I did. History mystery. <laughs> I'm actually not, I'm pissed off at myself that I didn't go there myself. Mm. God damn it. Come on, get it together. There might, again, there's a film, so there might be fan fiction of the Maybe. film. And there also is historical fan fiction on. Uh, archive of our own. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know this because I, I wanted to see if there was any political fan fiction, and lo and behold, there oh. is. Oh God! <laughs> so if if you can if you can find some, please send it to I me. I will. <laughs> but yeah, a fourth man who was on the boat. His name was Joseph Moore. Uh, he was the relief keeper, and he kind of rotated in and out, so the others got a bit of time on land. Yeah. Away from the dreadful tin can that was the lighthouse. <laughs> No, by all accounts, it was as nice as it could be, but, you know, just isolated. Yeah. Moore was aboard, and uh, with some difficulty, he made his way to the landing point and explored the island. He found the entrance gate and the outside door to the lighthouse were closed. Mm -mm. When he got inside, he found the beds were empty. The men were not ill. What's more, inside the lighthouse, the fire was out and the clock, supposedly, had stopped. Mm. Moore ran back to the boat to get help and he was joined by two more crew members the three of them then searched the lighthouse from top to bottom and then the island from end to end no trace of any of the three men was found Ooh. Moore along with the three with three other members of the crew stayed behind to man the lighthouse while the captain uh, returned uh, to shore where he sent a report to the lighthouse headquarters which is in Edinburgh huh. 
in George Street, uh, it's still there, and you uh, and um, the building has a little lighthouse outside of it, Aww. so you can still see that if you want. Yeah, it's nice. That's cute. <laughs> the the Northern Lighthouse Board, I should clarify, they're still going. Meanwhile, the emergency lighthouse crew uncovered several more unsettling and strange facts. Mm. The logbook was complete up until the thirteenth of December, and the log for the morning of the fifteenth was prepared. The oil storage vessels were all properly filled, mm. the le- lenses of the light clean, and the machinery well kept. Pots and pans had been tidied away in the kitchen after lunch, indicating that December 15th seemed to be going pretty much as normal until about midday. According to a report that seems to have originated in a, a fictional poem of the account written by Wilfred William Gibson, there was an untouched meal on the table and a chair knocked over, but that's not true. I think they were trying to do that kind of Marie Celeste thing of, you know, mm. there was food unprepared, but that's 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 not true in this case. Yeah, I was going to say, it was giving me Marie Celeste vibes as it was. They didn't need to add that add stuff that wasn't true yeah it's yeah i think everything being cleaned and put away is in a way also interesting yeah absolutely and there is there were some other clues outside of the lighthouse so um the island had two landings the east and the west Mm -hmm. so a boat could land even if a storm was battering one side of the islands yeah the east landing was completely normal but the west was not equipment for landing supplies was usually to be found uh, about 35 meters up uh, at the cliff edge in a box mm-hmm. the box was smashed open and the ropes that were inside it were draped around a crane on the platform oh. this platform had sturdy iron railings to keep the men safe in stormy weather and the railings were twisted out of shape huh. Okay. Yeah. Furthermore, a block of stone weighing at least a ton had been dislodged by something and fallen into the landing stage. Oh my god. And a life buoy that was stored 110 feet above sea level had disappeared completely. Okay, I'm starting to form ideas about what might have happened. One final clue lay in wait. Mm. The protective oilskins of the three keepers. Mm. Now, Ducat and Marshall's coat and boots were missing, but MacArthur's were still there. Okay. Nothing else was ever found of them. And no real official conclusion was ever reached. The National Lighthouse Board's official investigation, which was led by Superintendent Robert Muirhead, Mm -hmm. uh, set forth a theory as to what they thought had happened. They thought the three men had gone to the West Landing, where, and I'm quoting here, a large body of water going up higher than where they were and coming down upon them had swept them away with resistless force. Yeah, that was going to be my kind of theory or that one of them went out or t- either that or two of them went out they got swept away the third one hears the noise and goes out without the oil skins and then he mm-hmm. is also swept away yeah i mean yeah that's what that's what was pointed mm. out um that if that theory does not entirely account for the missing oil skins mm. if um macarthur had to rush out in his shirt sleeves it's unclear how he'd know there was an emergency in the first place because the landings were too far away to hear anything okay okay that, that especially in a storm things. yeah fanthorpe proposes a slight adjustment mm-hmm. macarthur if he was the duty cook that day would have still been in the lighthouse clearing up while the other two went down to the landing his observation point from the lighthouse was much higher than theirs from the kitchen window, he sees an enormous wave, it would have to be about 60 metres high, approaching the landing. He races outside to warn his friends, mm-hmm. no time to you know get his coat or anything, but they can't hear him over the storm, and because they're so far away. He runs towards them, but unfortunately the wave hits the island, shattering the toolbox, twisting and uprooting the iron railings, and sweeping all three men out to sea. That does make sense, I can see that. Mm. 
But as um, Hasbell Smith points out in the Island book, this does not explain why the doors and gate were closed. True. Also true. He was in too much of a hurry to put on his waterproofs. Yeah. Another similar theory was put forth by a man named Walter Aldebert, who was a keeper of the lighthouse from 1953 to 1957. Mm -hmm. He spent all four of those years pretty much trying to figure out the answer to this mystery. You know, and he had considerable experience with what the site was like, so that's definitely worth taking into consideration. His explanation was this. The West Landing is in a narrow inlet ending in a cave. Very occasionally a giant wave would thunder into this inlet, causing air pressure in the cave to explode and then just, like, throw tons of water over the cliff. Yeah. A very spectacular wave, basically. Such a wave could easily have washed one man out to sea. He then proposed that the remaining man rushed to the lighthouse for help and was joined by MacArthur, oil skinless. A second wave of great height crashed into the cave to expel tons of water again, washing the second two men away. The, the problem with this is that such waves are very rare, and for two to occur at both critical moments is a bit of a coincidence. Yeah, that does mm. come across coincidency. Yeah. Of course, the press had a field day with the whole thing, as oh, I'm sure naturally. you can imagine. And the thing has become a legend. Um, as I previously mentioned, there was a very famous poem written about it from which some facts about it, which aren't actually true, have been obtained. But it wasn't entirely unprecedented. There were a lot of strange myths associated with the islands. Probably because they were so isolated. Yeah. Fairies and Kelpies were said to live there. <gasps> Kelpies. Yes, I think we talked about Kelpies very briefly in like our first episode. I believe so. Yeah, Kelpies are cannibalistic water demons yeah. that eat stray humans and can assume a human shape to lure prey. Also horses. Yeah, they, they tend to be depicted as horses. Mm. Like the, the famous statue of the Kelpies, which you can see if you're driving from Edinburgh to Glasgow, is uh, two horses' heads. Yes, yes, I've seen that. Not in person, sadly, but... But yeah, yeah, they tend to be depicted as horses, but they can assume other shapes Mm -hmm. as well. And they are allegedly hostile to humans. Yeah. Another legend said that the islands were enchanted and that trespassers would be turned into seabirds. Huh. Which you can... Fine. I wonder why seabirds. Obviously. Mm. People have said alien abduction. Oh, of course. uh, Which is based on no evidence at all, obviously. But th- but this was this has actually come across in a lot of fiction based on the incident. Mm. So um, there's a 1977 Doctor Who four-parter uh, called The Horror of Fang Rock. Uh, okay. Uh, that's the who was that? That's the fourth Doctor. Yeah, and that kind of proposes aliens being involved in some way with a lighthouse disappearance. There are other fictional versions of the story that kind of take the same cue. Mm-hmm. For example, there's a, an adventure game called Darkfall 2 Lights Out, Ooh. which features a fictional disappearance of three Cornish lighthouse keepers. Mm-hmm. And in this, the strange events are caused by a time slip. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, so I, 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 I like that as a fictional version mm. of it. That's good <laughs> as a fictional story. Totally, yeah. But there are other slightly more grounded in reality ideas. Mm include foul play. Allegedly, MacArthur was a volatile character. Might a fist fight have broken out that caused all three to fall into the sea? Maybe one murdered the other two and then killed himself. Mm. Or murdered the other two, was trying to get rid of their bodies, and while doing that, got swept away? Yep. That could have happened. Yeah. Cabin fever is a real possibility. Oh, absolutely. As we yeah. were kind of talking about earlier, they might have gone lighthouse on each other. Mm. I recall reading that the the story the lighthouse is based on is the reason that they would send three keepers out instead of two. Ah, uh, because then you have like a third party essentially. Something like that. Yeah. I don't I don't know if that's correct, but um, I would imagine three would be slightly better than two. Yeah. But, you know. 
but then also two can gang up on one. Yes, totally. There's that. <laughs> Um, there are other factors, like maybe one of them was an alcoholic and was violent. Mm. Uh, one theory I read that didn't go into any detail just said a love affair gone wrong <laughs> to bring it round neatly to what you were saying before. <laughs> just a really tragic threesome. <laughs> <laughs> we were just in a... It, we were just trying to be in a nice throuple. Yeah. And it all went wrong. We were caught in an, in an embrace. Embrace. <laughs> or even... One man might have found God and dragged his colleagues into the sea in a fit of religious contrition. Possible. I don't know if that happened often, but it's been put forward as a theory. I'm about to really reach religious contrition in lockdown, I think. It's gonna happen. Oh yeah, I hope. I mean, that's kind of, that was their aim in solitary confinement in Victorian prisons. Yeah. Was for, for prisoners to reach religious contrition. Yeah, penance. It's not working on me so far, no. but I'll, I'll keep you posted. But yeah, like I say, there's lots of there's lots of kind of falsehoods around it including i've already mentioned the poem but also it, apparently the rumor is that the logbook contained reports of strange weather and odd behavior mm. but a report by mike dash for the 14 times found this to be fictional oh. um, I, I believe it was made up for the newspapers yeah it would be wouldn't it but yeah other implausible scenarios include abduction by foreign spies mm. which i guess is the 1901 equivalent of aliens yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also uh, one that the keepers left in secret and started a new life, which I like of to course. believe that. And maybe the baleful influence of the mythical seven hunters. I guess the idea is that they their, their influence managed to somehow turn the lighthouse keepers mad. Mm, just they're like, jump in the ocean, do, do it. it. <laughs> it's quite M.R. Jamesy. It is... Ultimately, I don't think we're ever going to actually know the answer. Mm, there's too many unknowns. But I don't know, what do you think? I, I'm a fan of the kind of two of them got either swept out, one tried to warn them, or the one where he mm. saw the wave coming and tried to warn them and then all three went. Because the only other idea I had was that maybe two of them went out, got swept away third one realised they hadn't come back in a while and went out to look for them, but then why would he go out without his oil skin? Mm. Hmm. I mean, the the idea of the locked door is still bothering me. Yeah, unless it was kind of lock it behind him so water can't get in? So something could... Maybe so... I, I said this to my mum and she said rats. Also true. I don't know how much of a possibility that was, but that would definitely be something you wanted to avoid yeah. if you were in a lighthouse with finite supplies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then the gate. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And again, I don't even know how true that is because yeah. I read it in a in a pretty reliable source, but it's still entirely possible it was not true. Mm. Were they locked from the inside or the outside, or was that not a thing that was noticeable back? I don't know how nineteen hundred locks yeah. work. It does seem to rest on the gate and the door quite a lot, as far as mm. <laughs> like if it wasn't for those, it would I feel be quite a simple thing to kind of go. Yeah, this is what happened. This is what but happened. But those throw it. What do you think? Um. Well, I mean, I'm always an Occam's Razor fan. You know. Mm. Um. I think it's somewhere between Fanthorpe and Alderbert's theories. So I like that idea about him being in the lighthouse and noticing the wave coming. Yeah. Or something, and Alderbert would have known the island pretty well in the four years mm. he spent there. But his theory does rest on the rare wave happening twice in yeah. a short span of time. I mean, the, it was just one source I found that said it was rare. Mm. Although it was a source that was written about the islands and the tides. 
So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's a weird one. It's a great story. Um, I don't think it was anything supernatural. It's kind of fun to think no. that it might be. Yeah, maybe they're in Atlantis now. I hope they are. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, maybe th- maybe they just went away to, like I said before, be a polyamorous throuple. Ooh! Yeah. We can but hope. We can but hope. But yeah, I mean... At the very least, it was a tragedy. It left mm. it left behind widows and fatherless children, which is very sad. And those who who found the lighthouse as it was, they suffered from guilt and physical sickness, according to an account oh, I found. Geez. Yeah, so maybe a form of PTSD, you know. Mm. Um, and it also became hard to convince later keepers to go to what was already somewhat unpopular because of how remote it was. Yeah, now it's like cursed. Yeah. <laughs> Because um, mariners and sailors are very folk. superstitious. Oh yeah, totally. It's um, I was sure. reading a, a big list of maritime superstitions. Um, yeah. yeah, it's pretty like um, because my grandpa was a sailor. He had a boat, and um, the boat was called Katrina. Oh. It was, sp- but it wasn't named after me. It was already called that. Yeah. Were you named after it? No, I remember it was just just a coincidence <laughs> because he said he said to me um, I think he got the boat off that boat in particular after I was born, but I, I don't remember. Mm. He just said um to me like, can't rename it anyway because it's bad luck to rename boats. Huh. Yeah. Well, they broke that with Boaty McBoatface. Boaty McBoatface, They renamed no. that. Yeah, I know they did. Well, that's even the point so... of having that as, like, a competition in the first place. Yeah. If they're going to go, no, that's silly. That was... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, there are so many really cool maritime, like, folklore beliefs out there. Like, mm. I'm guessing you know about the magical properties of salt. Uh, like that it's a kind of barrier that you can't cross? Yeah, that it basically um, is a barrier to evil. Yeah. Uh, some accounts recommend sea-salting the windows and doors of your house to keep evil at bay. Um, my favourite one is hagstones. Yes! Which, I, I have two hagstones. Um, I love hagstones. They're great, aren't they? I, only one of them counts, apparently, because uh, hagstones, you're not supposed to buy them or be given them, you have to find them for them to work. Uh, um, so explaining hagstones to anyone who doesn't know what they are, it's basically a, a stone that, um, with a naturally sea-made um, hole in the middle, mm-hmm. and you hold it up to your eye, and if you look through, it's supposed to afford you access to the fairy realm. Kind of like in Coraline. Oh, yes. Yeah, like in Coraline. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have one that I found and one that someone gave me, so technically only one of those uh, works. I think I have... I think I have about four... Because I spend a lot of time at the coast, but only I think two of them would work and two of them were given to me. So, oh well, damn I it. Yeah, it sounds unfortunate, but there you go. But yeah, speaking of folklore, we're going to turn to something a little bit more folkloric next. Yay! But um, first, wouldn't it be more appropriate to have a little break? It would. Have I think maybe break. to get a a sea sea drink appropriate drink, maybe some rum. Yes, rum, rum. brandy, that kind of thing. Grog. Grog. <laughs> Okay, I will go get a drink and I will see you in a moment. See you in a moment. It's an awful mess and a bad case of cannibalism. Quote by Master Corporal Bob Bisson. If you want to hear more bad cases of cannibalism and indeed awful messes, make sure to listen to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. Hello, hello. Welcome hello. back. I have a hello. drink. I'm very Ooh. excited. I've got a cup of salt water. <laughs> I've just thought as well, 
If nothing evil can cross salt, how is there anything evil at sea? Great question. Um, the answer <laughs> is, um, well, uh, you see... Maybe it has to be salt that isn't mixed with something. I don't know. It, it's somewhat inconsistent in the, in the mm. way that myths often are. Yeah, and magic often is. Like the how are black cats lucky or are they unlucky thing? Depends on the continent. Europe, it seems to be lucky. America, it seems to be unlucky. Oh, is that how it goes? I think <laughs> so. I know they're definitely unlucky in America. Unfortunate. They're just kitties. Yeah, they're just lovely. Right, I want some folklore. Okay, we're going to have some folklore. Uh, we, we're going to turn now to the waters themselves, not just the lighthouses. Mm. More specifically, um, a strait in the Hebrides... Uh, well, between the Hebrides and the Northwest Highlands, mm-hmm. uh, known as the Minch. Now, it's actually the very the Minch. Yes, it, it, I've seen it called other thing. I think I've seen it called the Murray as well, but that seems I, I don't know how it's very. It, that seems to be very rare and or incorrect. Um, it's known as the Minch. I'm afraid I can't tell you what that actually means, although um, the etymology will be available somewhere. Um, and it's actually pretty close to where we just were. Okay. Like not far at all, so I don't know. Maybe maybe the the actual answer we were looking for will be in this all along. In the Minch, this is a story um, <laughs> of strange people who seem to live in this part of the sea and nowhere else Ooh. on earth. This is going to be the legend of the Blue Men of the Minch. <gasps> I love that band. Absolutely not. <laughs> That's not allowed here. Not those Blue Men. Oh. Different Blue Men. Different blue men, okay. And for this I used um, a book called Wonder Tales from Scottish Mythology and Legend by Donald Alexander Mackenzie. That's a great Scottish name. I know, right? This has a lot of great (laughs) Scottish names in it, believe me. I also used A Companion to the Folklore, Myths and Customs of Britain by Mark Alexander and Mermaids by Sky Alexander. No relation, I think. Perfect. I'm excited. (laughs) So... Basically, uh, water people are a myth that has many, many cultural variants, um, and they take on a lot more forms than you might think. They're not just that kind of female torso, fish tail, mm-hmm. mermaid that we tend to think of. Um, one of my favourites is actually a freshwater spirit um, known as Melusine. I think this is both an individual and also um, a type of mer creature. Yeah. Yeah, she was a European spirit who is usually depicted as half serpent and or with two tails at her waist, um, which is the Starbucks logo as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I think there's there's some debate as to where the Starbucks logo actually comes from, but um, it's thought that that is a melusine. Ah, I like it. Mm. I think my favourite is uh, the... um, There's a a, a merwoman type story in Russia and its surrounding areas. Oh, Rusalka. Yes! Yes, that's a a lake spirit, I Mm -hmm. think. And they're either benevolent or wronged women who drag men down into the depths. (laughs) I think they're wronged women. They're they're, they're like the spirits of wronged women or something. And they all have long red hair. So, maybe we are Rusalka. Big fan of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, pretty much every culture has like a version. Uh, every, uh, sorry, mm. every sea culture has some sort of version of ocean people. Britain has a lot of different types. 
um, and a lot of them Ooh. are Celtic folklore. So there's Ashrays or Azray, which are aquatic fairies which melt when captured uh-huh. into a puddle. Like when they, they when they're exposed to sunlight, they just turn into a puddle. I mean, same. Then from um, Orkney folklore, we've got the Finn folk, mm. who seem to be quite similar to mermaids. Mm-hmm. Then we've got the um, oh, I, I, I should have looked up how to pronounce this. I think it's pronounced the. I, I just in Scottish folklore, there's a creature called the uh, Shag. Okay. It's spelled C E A S G. So what I just said is definitely wrong. But they are half woman, half salmon. Ah, specifically I know, salmon. Right? Yes, specifically salmon. And again, in Scottish folklore, we've got the selkie. Yes, I love selkies. I love selkies. They're my favourite one. I love... There's there's something very melancholy about selkies. Mm, It's because men fuck them over. Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, yeah, it's a pretty... For those who who don't know, uh, the way to fuck over... Basically, a selkie is essentially a woman that is also a seal. Mm-hmm. It's like a woman that wears a seal skin and is mm-hmm. a seal, but then she can remove her skin and become a human on land. Mm-hmm. And they're often kind of lusted after by human males who, in order to get them to stay on land, will take their skin and hide it and essentially force them to stay on land. Yeah. And they always kind of long for the sea. And if they find their skin again, they will take it and never be seen again. Yeah, yeah. There's a great song by Joanna Newsom, uh, mm. Colleen, which is about... Um, well, actually, I don't think it ever explicitly says it's about a selkie, but it's pretty much the only way to interpret the lyrics, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, um, the, there's a famous poem uh, poem called The Forsaken Merman by um, Matthew Arnold. Mm. I've not heard that. It's a good poem. Um, it actually is about a merman who um, had children with his human female lover and then she abandoned him ah, so i'm like interesting reversal. Gender reversal i know right um <laughs> so yeah there's, we, there's a lot about mermaids out there probably more than you would have think mm. but the blue men they are of a kind of temperament of mermaid that is of the dragging sailors to the depths type yes yeah because you know some mermaids are friendly or shy or whatever um mm-hmm. these guys are vicious and they are all men, which I found very interesting. Mm. They're usually... They're, they're named for their appearance. Um, they're bluish-grey in colour mm-hmm. and are described as having long grey f- faces and sometimes long grey arms. Mm. They're of human size and possess great strength, apparently. Um, they also wear blue caps and one account says they have blue beards. It's a look. <laughs> I'm into it. They were said to live in the sea caves mm. at the Sound of Shant, which is the name given to the water around the Shant Islands off the top of Lewis. Shant means holy, mm-hmm. and the waters here are subject to very rapid tides and are known as the current of destruction due to all the ships wrecked there. That's a hell of a name. I like it. I know, right? Uh, folklore, there's a, a boatman song about them. Mm-hmm. To give you a brief excerpt from it, it is... Oh, weary on the blue men, their anger and their wiles. The whole day long, the whole night long, they're splashing round the isles. They'll follow every fisher, they'll f- haunt the fisher's dream. When billows toss, oh, who would cross the blue man's stream? Oh, yeah. I like it. I know. So what's especially interesting about them is their method of engaging with their prey. 
because you know you can imagine people might you know boats get sunk people go oh it was the blue men who did it but um apparently the blue men were very interactive and what they would do was the chief of the blue men would rise high in the water sort of Mm -hmm. at the waist and he would shout two lines of poetry at the skipper of the boat (laughs) Uh, if the skipper could recite two lines back then the blue men I could not, I beg your pardon, recite two lines back immediately, uh, the blue men would seize the ship and sink it. <laughs> to it, Mackenzie pithily adds, many a ship was lost in days of old because the skipper had no skill at verse. <laughs> That's why you need to teach poetry in school. Yeah. yeah. You can't recite two lines of Seamus Heaney, you're gonna die. Oh no, it was it was more like a rap battle. <laughs> like you had to, Im- you had to sort of improvise and reply to them. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that's a that's a fucking rap battle. I know, yeah, right? Um, in a story noted by Mackenzie, this is the story that seems to come up everywhere when talking about the the blue men. Mm-hmm. One time, a ship that was stopped by the blue men found itself in the middle of such a rap battle. The chief pulls himself waist high from the water and calls, "Man of the black cap, what do you say?" As your proud ship cleaves the brine. Uh, but the skipper was unusually quick-witted and responded immediately, My speedy ship takes the surest way and I'll follow you line by line. Uh. A, a brief battle ensued, but the chief was furious because he'd never like encountered so skilled an opponent before and ultimately conceded and fled. Huh. And they went through. Oh shit, he's too good. Basically, yeah. Another story has some fishermen crossing the minch and discovering one of the blue men sleeping on the surface. Mm-hmm. Just, like, just knocked out asleep. Like an otter. Basically, yeah. Have you ever seen an otter sleeping? That's, I, I assume. Very cute. I know, right? He was sleeping so soundly that he did not wake even when he was captured and bound by the fishermen. <laughs> I mean, it's sometimes it'd be like that. Sometimes like that it'd be. <laughs> <laughs> They decided they were going to take him to shore, but were stopped when two more blue men bobbed to the surface of the ocean and called, Duncan will be one, Donald will be two, will you need another ere you reach the shore? The skipper was like, oh shit, okay, rack battle time. (laughs) But before he could answer, the sleeping blue man woke up and said, well, called back, Duncan's voice I hear, Donald too is near, but no need of helpers has strong Ian Moore. And with that, he snapped the ropes that bound him, leapt out of the boat, and was gone. Nice. Yeah. And in this way, it was learned that the blue men have their own names. I like they're just land names. They're just land... I was thinking that too, because this begs the question, really, what are they? Yeah. So, several sources, one being John Gregerson Campbell, who was reporting sort of local folklore in 1900, Mm. has that they are fallen angels. Called Donald and Ian. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> they were apparently driven out of paradise. The angels became one of three things. Fairies on the land, blue men in the sea, or the nimble men in the sky. I don't quite know what that last one is. No. Mm. Um, it says they're also known as northern streamers or merry dancers. So I'm like, wind or the northern lights or mm. I don't know. Something like that. A legend that would make a bit more sense with the names was that they are the ghosts of drowned sailors. Oh, I do like that one. Yes, which might account for them being able to communicate in you yeah, know, yeah, and being called like Donald and Duncan <laughs> and Ian and, and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> Mackenzie actually points out how unusual it is that they are confined to such a tiny place and have mm. no real counterpart elsewhere. Just this one specific strait in Scotland. There are no other sort of stories worldwide about merfolk challenging 
you know, <laughs> human beings to, uh, to rhyme contests. Yeah. I mean, um, fairies often do. Yeah. So maybe it's just that kind of Europe, like, UK fairy. Yeah. Is it, there, there are some, like, explanations that try and go into it a bit more. Like, one theory is that they may have originated with Moorish slaves, mm. which were used by the Vikings to pull their oars, um, and possibly would have been stranded for a long time or outright abandoned in the Minch, uh, still wearing their traditional blue robes. Okay. And I I don't know if they were known for their poetry skills, but... Mm. um. Something to consider. Yeah. Another theory is that they're Picts in, you know, Pictish war uh, paint. Yeah. And they're in kayaks, which would mm. give the appearance of someone being waist high in the water. Yeah, I can mm. see that. I mean, they're pretty obviously they're like personifications of the treacherous conditions in that particular strait. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's the idea of it makes you have to think quickly mm. and smartly. And if you can't think quickly enough, then you die, which is very fitting for the ocean it's a pretty good metaphor Mm. but why a rap battle (laughs) it's interesting and also the the one thing i can't get past except well i can't but like i i didn't see any other sources really mention this is the fact that they are male Mm. because a lot of explanations of female sea creatures um generally boil down to these guys have been at sea for way too long Mm mm-hmm and now they're seeing a dugong and going, they're ah, yes. Seeing a dugong with some seaweed on its head and going, ah, yes, she is beautiful. Which, a woman. they're right, she is beautiful. I love <laughs> she dugong. She is. She is dugong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, seals sighted in the area might also account for sightings of sort of humanoid creatures. Mm. Seals have, well, they don't look like people, but they have, like, recognisable faces. And if you were at sea for too long. <laughs> uh, the strait is also home to dolphins and whales which we talked about a little bit earlier, which can appear bluish grey. Mm-hmm. And in calm weather, the blue men are said to swim playfully just under the surface, twisting and diving much like porpoises do. Yeah, that, so, that's, that's a porpoise. You, they still don't look like people, though, if you're no. close enough to them. It's it's their loquacity, plus the fact that they apparently play shinty, which is a game which is basically highland hockey. Okay. Yeah, apparently they, they, they're said to play that game. <laughs> It just makes you think, like, what the hell? Who are these people? It could be some some guy saw porpoises from afar away, massively exaggerated it when he was telling the story to his mates later, like, yeah, and he challenged me to a rhyming contest, and I won. And also they were playing hockey. Because, <laughs> like, it's not like it's in the middle of the ocean, so it's not like they'll mm. have been at sea for a long time before they saw this. Yeah, I don't... Mm. I couldn't find a lot of information on what it would have been like to cross that strait in, mm. you know, well, these stories are kind of gathered all the way up from ancient times to, it was the 1900s when they were sort of written down in the version that we have here. Mm. So yeah, I don't know. From what I can tell, there are no recent claimings of sightings. Well, that's something. Um, <laughs> uh, I didn't find any anyway. Oh, I want them to still exist playing hockey. I know, shinty, please. Shinty, sorry. Because people do still report, like, mermaid sightings and stuff nowadays. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe it's just because they're in such an extremely specific area that's not heaving with people. Yeah, there's not, like, cruise ships going past every five minutes. It would take a while to challenge an entire cruise ship to a route battle. God, I wish they did, and then everyone on it lost because they're all morons, and then they drown the boat. I don't Mm -hmm. like cruise ships. I fucking hate cruise (laughs) ships. 
But yeah, that's just, um, I was looking at kind of mer people in general, but honestly, that's my favourite story that I came across. Yeah, it's a good one. It's unusual. It's very unusual. And yeah, I, I agree with the historians who are pointing out it's strange that it should be so localised. Absolutely. Although, yeah, a lot of sort of mer creature tales are quite... Uh, well, we're most familiar with European ones, but like fish people tales do exist kind of all, all over yeah. the world. Yeah, I know. I realised it right after I said it, but I was being <laughs> mature and I was moving past it. Yeah. But like, even if they do exist around the world, like say, if we were to take, to take another example of a folkloric thing that exists around the world, like something like Bigfoot, it is a thing of like, although it does exist around the world, it's, there's some kind of through line that links it. Like they all are these big kind of hairy half man half beast type things whereas from what you've told me this seems to be the only story of exactly this type or anything like it yeah and yeah i mean there are stories of creatures like challenging people to riddles or mm. play, you know like the the sphinx or mm -hmm. playing uh games with them or something so that itself is not unusual but the kind of combination of it being a water thing i find very interesting yeah it's a water thing it's in a local, a specific location. Yeah. It likes rap battles, and it's male. Yeah, and apparently they're all bros, and apparently they like to sleep floating on the surface. So, and they're valid. Yeah. Oh, I never said they weren't valid. They're very <laughs> That's valid. That's true. You didn't. Um, <laughs> no, I, re I really like that story. Mm. Actually, I did a lot of the research when for that when I was uh, started looking at what is going to be the final part. Oh. <gasps> Uh, of our tale tonight. Now this is quite a short little tale, um, so mm -hmm. we're winding down gently, okay. and it's going to be a look at a very real natural phenomenon as opposed to a myth or a legend, but we are going to get mythological with it as well. Okay? Yes, I am excited. And we're still off the west coast of Scotland, this time we're a little further down, a little further south, um, in Argyll and Butte. Okay, I've heard of Argyll. Mm -hmm. We're getting there. Mm -hmm. It's drivable from Glasgow like I think you could do a day trip from okay to Argyll I'm really showing my goddamn ignorance here I don't spend very much time <laughs> in the west of Scotland so apologies though I want to because I did loads of research on it for this and now it sounds amazing mm. yeah <laughs> but yeah so what we're looking at today is also in the sea and it is sandwiched between the islands of Jura and Scarba Okay. Uh, here you will find the Corrievreckons, uh, the Gulf of Corrievreckon, which is home to the third largest permanent whirlpool in the world. <gasps> mm -hmm. Oh, that's cool. It is cool, isn't it? That's very cool. Yeah, I love whirlpools. Yeah, they're like they're so strange. They're very they're um you know that John Mulaney bit where he's like quicksand did never became as much of a problem for yep. me when I was mm -hmm. an, an adult. That I thought it would. I, I, have, I have that relationship with whirlpools. <laughs> uh, but a lot of information from here comes from uh, Hamish Haswell-Smith again. Also from a website called whirlpoolscotland.co.uk, which is maintained by uh, a company called Craignish Cruises, who are one of several cruises who will take you out by boat to see the whirlpool, along with wildlife and whales. That's potentially quite dangerous. Um... Well, I'll talk about that in a bit. Mm. And also a little bit from Inside George Orwell by Gordon Bowker. Uh, we'll get to Ooh. why a little bit later. Okay, 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 okay. So whirlpools, let's have a look at them in general first. They're very interesting and misunderstood phenomena. 
They're my favourite phenomena, I think, that take place, like natural phenomena. My favourite phenomena? Yeah, I could talk about my favourite, like, weather phenomena. I was talking about water spouts earlier. Those are very cool. Yeah, Love they those. are. But yeah, the way whirlpools are made is relatively simple. It's, um, mm-hmm. in the sea, it's uh, two opposing currents, or else currents running into an obstacle, and that's what creates mm-hmm. that swirling vortex. Uh... Mm. Uh, the larger ones are known as maelstroms. Which is a, t- oh, a yeah. yes, a term often associated with Edgar Allan Poe's eighteen forty one story, a descent into the maelstrom. Yeah, yeah, which is a pretty cool story. But yeah, so this story helped to popularize the idea of whirlpools being these huge, monstrous things that would suck ships whole into the ocean. Mm. This was tested on an episode of MythBusters, which actually was one of the best sort of versions I could find of of it actually being tested as to like how deadly yeah. whirlpools are. I don't know how scientifically credible Mythbusters actually is. I'm betting you, you mm. couldn't cite it in a paper. Adam Savage is a professional. Oh, he is. It's something. He got into a whirlpool for this episode. Yeah. A, 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 a man-made one, to be honest. <laughs> Basically, the conclusion that was reached in this episode was that no whirlpool ever recorded has been strong enough to suck down a ship a la Edgar Allan Poe. Oh. It would have to be nearly ten times as powerful as the most powerful uh, vortex recorded. Oh. And they like did a model test and it showed it was very unlikely to happen. But mm. for an individual person who was caught in a whirlpool, it was deemed plausible that they could be sucked down or at the very least pass out from the turbulence and drown. Makes sense. I know, right? So, yes, theoretically whirlpools are dangerous, especially these, these huge ones, to mm-hmm. swimmers. Which is yeah. why you shouldn't swim near this whirlpool. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. That goes all my plans. I know, right? Well, actually, well, we'll talk about that in a minute again. Mm-hmm. But um, this brings us back to Cory Vrecken. Again, third largest in the world. Ooh. Uh, its name uh, means the speckled cauldron in Gaelic. Okay. Uh, as you can imagine, it's been around for a very long time. There are texts about it from, like, the 9th century, um, oh, which you can wow. read online if you're interested. It shows up in St. Columba's account of his travels. And it's got its own folklore, so the legend goes that the hag goddess of winter used the gulf as a wash tub for her vast tartan garments. <laughs> I know, right? I love it. I know, it's great. And when it's That's just you. That's just me. You are the hag goddess of winter. I wish I was the hag goddess of winter. <laughs> but when she's done, her clothes become snow white, and then she drapes them and they become the blanket of snow covering the land. Ah, I like it. And also, she was responsible for the foul weather in the whirlpool, and that it was her decision which ships would be wrecked and which would be spared. It's very nice of mm. her. Another sort of etymological leg- etymological legend. Oh my god, what word is that? Etymological. Etymological. Thank you very much. I'm having a stupid day today. I swear to God. <laughs> it's okay. But it's about a Scandinavian prince named Brecken. Mm-hmm. It's said that he fell in love with a princess of the island, and to prove his love. Uh, to her father, he had to pass three days and three nights in his boat, anchored in the maelstrom. On the advice of the wise men and women at home, uh, which was said to be Norway in most versions of the tale, Mm -hmm. he made his anchor from three cables, one made of wool, one made of hemp, and one made of the hair of virtuous maidens. (laughs) I know. He anchored himself in the whirlpool on the first... uh, And on the first night, the hemp rope broke. On the second, Mm -hmm. the wool rope broke. And on the last day, unfortunately... The uh, hair rope broke as well, dragging Brecken and his boat under the waves. Oh no. I know. It said it, his body was dragged ashore by his loyal black dog, 
and buried in, in the Uvrechen, or the Cave of Brecon, on the shores of Jura, which is a cave you can still visit today. There was a slut among those virtuous women. Well, that's the thing. Apparently one of the maidens who provided the rope was not as pure as she made out. In some versions of the story, um, it was his lover who provided mm. the hair oh. and was not as, you know, pure as she was pretending to be. Oh. Which makes for a better dramatic payoff, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would like it to be known, we do not slut shame here. We don't slut shame history. Here. Yes, we don't, not at all. You be as... Oh. Also, I don't know if the moral of that story is don't be a slut, or uh, if you are a slut, just own up to it. Yeah. I like to think it's the second one. Yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> just be honest, man. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and then that that's um, sort of uh, lore about what how the name Cory Vrecken came about from... Koi uh... Vrecken. But um, I, I don't, I think that's um, like a pun in Gaelic. I, again, I don't. I don't speak Gaelic. I'm a terrible Scottish oh. person. But yeah, this the it's a pretty violent storm when it really gets going. Mm. There's a quote here I've got from. Now this is written by Murdoch Mackenzie. Oh, <laughs> good name, right? What a Scottish name! I know he was an Orcadian, mm-hmm. so he's from Orkney, and he was a hydro- hydrographer to the Admiralty. Ooh. Um, and he was doing a survey of the entire coast in the mid 1700s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, he wrote about the whirlpool. Corryvreckan is a violent breaking sea and whirlpool formed between the islands of Jura and Scarba, which will wash over any ship's deck and be apt to sink her if the hatches are open. The stream is so excessively rapid and the sea swells and breaks so violently, even in the calmest weather, that it is impossible to measure the greatest celerity of the storm. But it does not seem to be less than 12 or 14 miles an hour. The counter stream, yeah, no, right. The counter stream seemed to run about five or six miles an hour. For a boat with six oars in a calm day could not stem it. To manage a vessel over Corryvreckan, the most prudent way seems to be to secure the hatches and everything that is loose on deck, and to endeavour by sails and helm to steer the vessel right through the middle of the sound, so as the tide may carry her between the most violent breakers which lie on each side. Jeez. Yeah. So the whirlpool, um, according to modern estimates, reaches speeds of up to ten knots, which is about. 11.5 miles per hour to uh, us landlubbers. Mm, that's pretty fast. It's very fast. And on a on a spring tide and a westerly wind, uh, the roar of the whirlpool can be heard miles away, according to one source, up to ten. Oh my god. I know, right? It's loud. Why is it so violent? Well, without getting into the geological technicalities behind the whole thing, it's basically a mixture of strong Atlantic currents and a very unique underwater topography. Mm. There is a submerged rock stack in the gulf, and beside it is what Haswell Smith calls a great narrow pit like a gateway to hell, which descends 100 metres below the surrounding seabed to an overall depth of 219 metres. Jesus. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. (laughs) You can see uh, surveys of the seabed on whirlpoolscotland.co.uk, if you're interested in seeing such a thing. Yeah, in order to get peak whirlpool performance, you need a combination of the right tides and a powerful wind from the right direction. Mm. And when it gets going, it is really something. (laughs) Now, there is also a dive company, I found, which will take experienced divers, and I mean very experienced, you need to have at least 500 dives under your belt before they'll take you on, for the princely sum of £400. They will take you to Corrie Vrecken at slack tide, 
and there is a video of that on uh, their website which I recommend checking out it mostly features crustaceans <laughs> I know it's really cool and yeah they they were mentioned in the Telegraph so big pinch of salt really because mm. it's the Telegraph but the the writer for that called it potentially the most dangerous dive site in British waters yeah I mean I'm looking at pictures of it now you would not get me to swim there for love nor money no I would not and I love swimming in the ocean and I wouldn't swim in mm-hmm. the <laughs> very dangerous no thank you there's there's a, a myth a modern myth that the royal navy described the passage as unnavigable mm. as far as we know this never actually happened but they did call the nearby gray dogs which is a tidal race also known as little cory Vrecken. uh that was labeled unnavigable okay but not the whirlpool itself yeah. it's just like extremely dangerous mm. avoid <laughs> if possible yeah basically Now, according to a few sources I came across, Scottish documentary makers once threw a mannequin in a life jacket into the whirlpool. (laughs) I can't find the primary source for this, um, although it seems to lead to a BFI, a British Film Institute page that doesn't do anything. So the following information is from a children's book called A Young Scientist's Guide to Defying Disasters (laughs) by James Doyle. A fine source. (laughs) Totally. It also kind of regurgitates the these waters were once labelled unsaleable mm. myth. But according to this book, the dummy was sucked into the vortex and disappeared. When it was later recovered, the dive meter showed it had been sucked down more than six hundred feet, and that its life and its life jacket was full of gravel. So clearly, it had been dragged along the ocean oh, floor. Oh my god, that's horrifying. Yeah, this seems fairly consistent with the MythBuster findings. Mm. So I'm going to deem it plausible. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to like see the original footage first. Mm. Uh, allegedly, it's in a documentary called Sea Twister for the Discovery Channel. Of course, that's the Discovery Channel. Obviously, it's the Discovery Channel. Um, but I couldn't find uh, I couldn't find any of the footage, so mm. I'd love to see it. But yeah, pinch of salt. Who knows? Totally pinch of salt. Um, although people have been caught in the Gulf, mm. caught in the whirlpool. You may have been wondering why I brought up George Orwell earlier. I was. I was waiting for the explanation. Well, we're going to end with a little Orwellian story. <gasps> Yay. So here's a, here's a fun fact for you. He wrote much of 1984 whilst uh, living on Jura. Ah, okay. Mm. His family had a... Well, he was renting a, a farmhouse, which is still there and which you can still rent huh. for the princely sum of, I believe, £1,000 a week. Jesus. <laughs> Maybe not. I know. It doesn't have electricity either. It's been like preserved as it was in the forties. Oh so, it's got a generator. Uh, excellent. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Anyway, in mid-August nineteen forty-seven, Orwell was returning from a boating trip. He was with two companions in this trip, and uh, his three-year-old son was also on board. Oh boy. He apparently misread the tide table, mm-hmm. and yeah, the boat found itself on the edge of the whirlpool. Oh god. Yup. In the stream, the boat's engine was washed away and the party was forced to row. They made it to a small rocky outcrop nearby. Mm-hmm. This rocky outcrop is actually called Ellen Moore, yeah. the same as the, the lighthouse, lighthouse island. Was. <gasps> All that means in Gallic is big island. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was <laughs> a connection. It's not. Oh. I actually went and double-checked this like, <laughs> with my dad first. Like, it's not the same island, because if it is, they drifted it very long way. Oh, yeah. It's it's just the name that would sort of generally be given to, like, larger islands. Thanks, Gallic. Acting groups, yeah, no. There's an island nearby called Ellen Beg? I think Beg means little, so just big island and little (laughs) island in that gulf. That's all there is. And they weren't even... They were just little outcrops. Yeah. (laughs) But, um... 
they made it there, but the boat overturned before they could land, and all of them were thrown into the sea. Oh boy. Yes, Orwell had to dive in order to save his son. Mm. And they were then stranded on the outcrop for three hours. Oh dear. Which Orwell regarded as a bit of an adventure. He would, wouldn't he? He would, wouldn't he? A bit boy scoutish, according to that. He apparently he lit a fire with a lighter, which was strangely still working, mm. and some grass and peat. And he went in search of food, finding nothing but puffins. And you can't eat puffins. He didn't eat. Well, some people do eat puffins, yeah. but he did not eat puffins. He apparently engaged in some impromptu bird watching and lectured his friends a bit. <laughs> About puffins. <laughs> Fortunately, they were picked up by a passing fishing boat, which spotted the fire. Yeah, before yeah. he could really bore them to death. No, oh, George, please, fascinating. Um, he went on to complete the first draft of 1984 in the next few months, but unfortunately, he became ill after the shipwreck. It's not known if it was directly caused by it. I think it's suspected it was, but then there were probably also other contributing factors. Mm. Um, by Christmas, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. Um, he lived for just over two years more, but he was weakened by TB, mm. by the medicine he got for TB, and also by his push to finish 1984. Yeah. That's a slight oversimplification <laughs> of the of his life at that point, but you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. This is probably the most famous story about Cory Vrecken. Mm. And it also illustrates what these currents can do to a small boat, I think. Absolutely, yeah. So they, they couldn't drag down a big boat, mm. but a, a smaller vehicle. I don't think they... I st- I'm still not sure if they could suck it in. No, but they could definitely, I think, break bits off. Yeah, it seems um, it would be possible for them to damage a boat mm. and or capsize it, which is yeah. a lot... Yeah, which is pretty dangerous. Oh, yeah. Mm. And yeah, Cory Vrecken is... There to visit today, I, I mentioned one tour company earlier, but there are actually a lot of tour companies that will take you out there. Of course there are. In, it, you can actually get quite close to whirlpools in boats, because, like I say, they're just not powerful enough mm. to really do much. I suppose if you are used to doing it, yeah. like these tour companies will be, mm-hmm. makes sense that you'd know how close you can get. I'd like to see it. Um, yeah, my dad's, my dad's see seen it. it. He's, he was talking about, he did a walk around Jura, mm. and... Um, he saw it in person. It's pretty oh, cool, cool, apparently. I know, right? Yeah, I think it would be an intriguing getaway. Mm. It's isolated as hell. You could make an adventure out of the whole thing. You know, Ooh. you could travel around the West Niles. Yeah. You could cross the Minch. Maybe you could even land on the larger Ellen Moore to try and solve the mystery. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you could do all that in one day, but you could damn no. well try, and that's the most important thing. It'd be like a long weekend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and one we should do. That actually does sound kind of fun as soon as we're allowed to leave yeah. our houses again. Oh no, you're you're allowed to leave your house, I think. Technically. Um, I'm allowed to leave it for shopping or meeting one other person. <laughs> Jesus Christ, it's like East Germany. <laughs> Groups of no more than seven. I'm Wonderful. just thinking of the Bill Bailey sketch of Das is for Boston. Das is for Boston. Mother, may I meet up with my friends of up to two people? Yes. The state provides excellent <laughs> facilities. <laughs> I love Bill Bailey. But yeah, this is a part of the world that's really heaving with mythology, and I've still barely Absolutely. covered it, even though I've been really focused on one particular area. Mm. It's all wrapped up in reality, like a lot mm. of the mythology that I've talked about, and, you know, it's all, like, th- those three guys really did vanish, and it is a mystery that's never been solved, mm. even though, you know, it's become a bit steeped in folklore. Yeah. I want to say, as a quick disclaimer for the whole episode, please don't approach these seas without an experienced guide. The yes. ocean is a very dangerous place. Please. Yes. Um, as If you want a, a good 
reason not to approach it mm. without an experienced person. Mm-hmm. Um, our sister podcast, Casting Lots, Ooh, has yes. uh, a whole series of stories um, mm-hmm. about the, is it the tradition of the sea? I believe it's called, or the something of the sea. The, the, yeah, I think it's the tradition of the sea, isn't it? Yeah, but essentially, uh, survival cannibalism. Yeah. <laughs> they have some you, good, good stories. You don't want to be stranded in a boat or on an island. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is because the... you may have to eat your friends. Oh, fuck it, you might have to eat people you hate, which might yeah. be worse. That's even worse. Yeah. Honestly. Probably tastes very bitter. <laughs> um... <laughs> But yeah, these are, you know, all just one tiny little nugget of sea stories. Mm. Hopefully, I'll have more sea stories with like a part two or something Yay. in the future. Yeah, because there are loads. I'm excited to hear them. Hmm. I think I think a Cornish one would be interesting. <gasps> Cornish one would be good. There's a lot of mer folk stories in Cornwall. Mm. Mm. Well, it's an area very steeped in in folklore. Oh yeah. Folklore and also maritime. Maritime history and mm. you could talk about smuggling a lot. I think that would be very interesting. Yeah. That was another and thing I, I wanted wrecking. to talk about. And also, yes, I wanted to talk about wreckers and wrecking um, a yeah. lot, which ultimately I ended up sort of not doing at all, but I did mm. start some research on it. I even uh, tried to go out to see a wreck that's quite near where I live in the mm. Firth of... Well, there's loads of wrecks in the Firth of Forth near where I live because it was used during the Second World War. Ah. And the First World War. Yeah. A, yeah. Um, so there's quite a few wrecks out there, I think. But, um, yeah, shipwrecks are very interesting. And Yay. we have loads of them. We are not in short supply. <laughs> no, not at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. I am excited to to hear next episode. Yeah. Your next episode of, of Naval Stories. Well, I don't know if that's going to be my next next episode, but mm. it'll happen. Does that mean? Yeah. 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 Well, whenever it comes up, I'm excited to whenever hear it. Whenever it comes up, you know. Uh, how about you? Do you have any ideas for... Well, I'm thinking the next episode mm-hmm. will be um, looking at something that applies to both your home country and and mine, especially my home county. Interesting. And that is uh, witch hunts. <gasps> Ooh, great topic. That's a mm. very good topic, actually. Ooh, okay. I'm going to be covering it. I'm going to probably look more in the southeast, since that's mm. where I am. Yeah. Um, and we are the home of uh, Matthew Hopkins. Yes. For better or for worse. The Witchfinder General. <laughs> the Witchfinder General. I remember Blue uh, Peter did a bit about about him. <laughs> what a weird thing for Blue Peter to cover. It was fantastically entertaining. Blue Peter got dark sometimes. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't doubt it. There's loads of witch stories in mm. Scotland, like you said. There's there's um the, there's a hill near where I am now, North Berwick Law, which is supposed to be home to witches. Ooh, I know, perfect. right? Okay, I will definitely be talking about the Wookiee witch because Ooh, yes, I feel like I need to. Um, but yeah, that's what we'll be looking at next time. Some good Wonderful. witch stories, mm-hmm. um, and a bit of a look at the history of witch hunts, which are not anything like anything any politicians today are facing. No, Christ, no. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to get that in there. And not even the expression witch hunt is really what. <laughs> no. Not at all. Yeah, well, let's not get into that. No, next time. Politics, man. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I will see you then for witch talk. Yeah, I'm excited now. And I will bid you good night. Well, bid you adieu. Don't let the tiny little minnows that may actually be blue men bite. <laughs>
Podcast Network.